Good morning and welcome to the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. We're a spiritual and spirited community dedicated to the free search for truth and meaning. If you're a first-time visitor here and you have questions about Unitarian Universalism or about this particular congregation, please feel free to ask the friendly people at the visitor table and they will do their best to help you. We come from a heritage of teaching that there is a spark of the divine in everyone. So it is in the spirit of that heritage that I say, let us greet the divine in our midst by turning to the person to your right and left and welcoming them here this morning. Let us say together the words by which we light our chalice, which is the symbol of our faith. Love is the spirit of this church and service is its law. This is our great covenant, to dwell together in peace, to seek the truth in love, and to help one another. Our call to worship this morning was written by Gilda Radner. I always wanted a perfect ending. Now I've learned, the hard way, that some poems simply don't rhyme. And some stories don't have a clear beginning, middle, and end. Life is not about what's knowing what's going to happen, and, but having to change, taking the moment and making the best of it without knowing what's going to happen next. Delicious ambiguity. One thing we don't want to do as a congregation is to end up in a certain place together and think, why are we here? How did this happen? So we wrote a mission statement eight years ago, by we I mean y'all, and wrote it on the wall and we say it together every Sunday. We gather in community to nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice. Our meditation reading this morning is taken from The White Album by Joan Didion. We tell ourselves stories in order to live. We look for the sermon in the suicide, for the social or moral lesson in the murder of five. We interpret what we see, select the most workable of the multiple choices. We live entirely, especially if we are writers, by the imposition of a narrative line upon disparate images, by the ideas with which we have learned to freeze the shifting phantasmagoria, which is our actual experience. Now is the time in our service when we enter into an attitude together of prayer and meditation where we speak to or listen to God as we understand God or listen to the inner wisdom that's within us or just follow our breath as it goes in and out of our bodies. In any of these ways, we enter that still place inside where we sink our roots deep into the heart of compassion where we grow stronger and clearer, 
where we cease being ruled by the lists in our mind, the fears, the worries, the hopes, the anxieties. Let us enter into the wise silence together, understanding that in this congregation, tiny noises from babies and the sounds of life count as part of the silence. It's better in time. You say I'll pull myself together, pull it together, you'll be fine. Tell me what the hell do you know? What do you Be real. Won't know how I feel. 
In the Joan Didion quote, she says that we tell ourselves stories in order to live. We tell ourselves stories in order to impose a narrative on the shifting phantasmagoria of the things that happen to us. We take the option that makes the most sense, the most workable option, she says at the time. And that's been my experience. I remember um, an incident or... I'll just say a compilation of incidents when I was working downtown my senior year of high school in Philadelphia. I was working at a legal clinic, free legal clinic, and um, the construction workers would yell things to me when I was walking by them on the street. And uh, I, um, there were things they yelled that I did not understand even though I had taken the equivalent of owl, still their imaginations were uh, greater than mine at the time. And they did things with their tongues and their fingers that I didn't really understand either. I was like, what in the world? And, and what, what woman does that work on? And <laughs> Or they would tell you to smile, and if you didn't, they would flip you off. So it just went from hey, baby, to, ah, really fast. And one day I was just so upset that I ran to my dad's office. He worked in Philadelphia at the time in town. And I ran, I burst through the door of his office at um, WCAU TV 10 in Philadelphia. And I just said, this is terrible. These men are yelling things at me, and I don't know what to do. And he said, well, you dress to be looked at. And I just thought, oh, oh, I I imposed a narrative. It's my fault. And as I had that discussion with him in, in my head over the next 10 years, I realized, yeah, I do dress to be looked at, but I don't dress to be looked at by those guys. I dress to be looked at by the by the guy I'm going to meet right now for lunch. I dress to be looked at by people I know, people who love me, not strangers on the street that don't know my birthday or my favorite color or my favorite song or anything about me. And and what am I supposed to do? Like wear something different on the street and then change clothes when I get inside? Should I maybe get a burqa? That would be, that was tempting for a while. Or armor, heavier than a burqa, but more badass. So it was very confusing to me, and I talked to the women at the Freed Legal Clinic about it. These were early 70s feminists. These women uh, yelled at me for wearing perfume. They yelled at me for shaving my legs. <laughs> and they, they were trying to train me up to be a good feminist in that, in that way that they, that they pictured it at the time. Anyway, I said, so what do I do when guys do this? Oh, and they said, oh, that's easy. Um, you stick your finger up your nose, and that'll take you right out of their fantasy. 
It worked. <laughs> they yelled other things, but I could understand those things. So street harassment is worldwide, and it's, you know, uh, what people might consider a pretty low level of harassment, although um, there are psychologists who talk about the damaging effects on young girls um, who are still developing emotionally and physically and still developing their idea of themselves and who they are in the world and what's okay between um, boys and girls, but then you have grown men who are uh, inserting themselves into your life, and it's uh, difficult to deal with it. And um, the statistics are that 85% of American females report facing street harassment before age 17, and almost 70% report facing it before age 14. And there are 10 and 11-year-olds who get yelled at when they're on their bikes um, on the street. And I remember being on my bike. I was about 10, probably. And this guy stopped and rolled down the window. He goes, come over here. I need to show you something. And I'm polite. You know, I'm a southern girl, North Carolina. I go over, and it's a, you know, a raincoat situation. And um, I knew that was not good. And I rode my bike away, but I didn't tell anybody because I knew it was my fault. So on a basic level, uh, catcalling is objectifying, makes you into an object. And most little girls are not used to being objectified. Nobody would call a little girl it in their own household. You're not used to being just an it. Um... And so when it happens, it's destructive. This is a poem by Najwa Zebian called Me Too. And I was blamed for it. I was told not to talk about it. I was told it wasn't that bad. I was told to get over it. So harassment and having uh, certain men, and again, I want to say, This is not all men, obviously. These are certain men who feel entitled to certain behaviors. Um, As the mother of two sons, I feel very fiercely about not categorizing in that broad a stroke. But there are certain men who feel entitled to put themselves into your life and stand there and demand time and demand conversation, and some of them demand access physically to you. At work, comments are made, challenges are given, obstacles are put, um, you get grabbed, you get suggestions, and some of it is overt as the Harvey Weinstein stuff, and some of it is much less overt, and um, sometimes people around can see it happening, and sometimes a person is skillful enough not to do it in front of other women or men. Um, Many men don't see it, but some do, and they don't know what to say. The question that brings this to the forefront most easily, and this happened in a um, 
a class where a professor was talking about this kind of thing, and he asked the mixed group, what do you do on a daily basis to avoid being raped? And one of his male students said, don't go to jail. The female students went, oh, well, I walk in the middle of the street when I'm walking, especially at night. I have my keys between my fingers so that I can defend myself. I have mace in my purse. I never leave my drink unattended in a bar. I don't leave my friend alone at a party. I try not to get drink too much. I I censor myself all the time about what I'm wearing. Even when I'm in my own home, I think... Um, What if somebody is looking through the window or what if somebody breaks in and I'm not wearing the right thing and then they can say it was my fault. Um, And we we lock our doors when we're going through certain neighborhoods, even though the danger for a girl child is mostly at home, at home or in the neighborhood. So, this is what happened last October, which changed everything. After the accusations started flowing about Harvey Weinstein, the actress Alyssa Milano invited people on Facebook, women on Facebook, that if they had been harassed, attacked, or sexually wounded in some way, that they should write Me Too in their status. That just means there's a line that says, how are you doing, and you write Me Too in there if you're not a Facebook person. This Me Too hashtag that she um, amplified was originated by a black woman named Tarana Burke 10 years ago to combat violence against women, particularly women of color. The Me Too movement is something that Tarana Burke started and Alyssa Milano amplified. So I wonder if any of you has an idea how many Me Too statuses there were after 24 hours. 12 million. 12 million Me Too's in 24 hours and so many more since. I I think what happened to almost every woman who saw all the Me Too's was something clicked in our mind and the narrative changed. Your shifting phantasmagoria of experiences now included understanding that almost every single woman in the world had this happen. How could it be your fault? How could it be your fault? So the narrative of, oh, this was my fault. I caused it somehow. I dressed wrong. I looked wrong. I didn't smile. I did smile. Um, I walked wrong. I didn't remember my keys. I, I drank a little too much. I, uh, I forgot to protect myself. I put myself in a dangerous situation out the window because we realized it happens to almost every single woman in the world and some men. I remember sitting with a group of friends in a coffee shop and saying, this was mixed, you know, about four men and two women. I said, you know, women are scared all the time, right? You know, women are in fear all the time, always aware that they could be attacked at any moment. (laughs) And one of my friends, a Presbyterian minister said, men are scared all the time too. And I said, oh, okay. What are they scared of? 
He said, we're scared that women will laugh at us. And I said, that's bad. I understand. Okay, now I'm weighing in my head. I might get laughed at. I might get killed. It's not equivalent. And I know men get attacked too. I know that. And non-sexually attacked, you know, somebody's going to come up to you and start a fight. That happens all the time. But I'm talking about this now. I don't want to play what about. I want to talk about this now. So women's inner narrative changed, and they, we began to say, this, this is not my fault. This happens all over the place. This is in the system. This is a whole system that says women are outside for our entertainment. That I have access to you because I'm a man and you're a woman. I have access, I'm entitled to come up to you at a party and say, hey, tell me about yourself. And if you say, I'm sorry, I don't feel like talking right now, I have, I'm entitled to be angry. So I, I read a story about... Um, a woman who was with her boyfriend on the street corner and another man approached and just talked to her and he said something like, hey, baby, why are you with this loser? You should be with me. And she turned to him and smiled and said, um, oh, no, I'm really with him. He's really nice. Um, we just had a really good time at the theater and so we're just going to go on because we're late for our restaurant. We got to keep moving. And he tried to talk to her, engage her a little more and she was sweet, nice, sweet, nice. And finally, they extricated themselves from that situation. And her boyfriend said, I'm really confused. Why didn't you just say to him, get lost? And she said, okay, here's something I need to explain to you. Maybe not that guy, but you never know which guy it'll be. That if you say something like, get lost, when he gives you attention, he could come after you and be violent. And so women all the time are trying to prevent that violence by being nice. Don't hurt me. Don't hurt my boyfriend. Don't hurt me. I'm nice. I respect you. I would love your attention in any other situation. However, right now, we're going to the restaurant. That's what we have trained ourselves to do. We've become experts in sweetly saying no and trying never to hurt feelings or never to provoke anger. So another most amazing thing that happened with this 12 million and many more, many more millions of Me Too's, is that the men began to see it too. And I think for most men, I think for all men, it was probably like, holy moly, I can't even believe this is so prevalent. And some people, men and women both, started doing that one-two punch of the patriarchy, or the system the way it is, however you want to call it, um, I was trained by those feminists in the 70s, so I call it the patriarchy. But that one-two that one -two punch of minimization and dismissal. Minimization, dismissal. That's how it stays invisible. Because our first response, men and women too, both alike, because we all carry the system within ourselves, in our cells. We say, oh, it wasn't that bad. Oh, nothing really happened. Oh, I'll pull it together. I'll be fine. I'll be fine. Oh, surely, you know, meh. what's wrong with that? Catherine Deneuve says, what's wrong with stealing a little kiss? And there's nothing wrong with stealing a little kiss if you're on a date with somebody that you've said yes to, but
But is stealing a little kiss when you're the boss and she's the receptionist? No. Stealing a little kiss when you're practicing a scene together in a play, um, when there wasn't really a kiss in the scene? Uh, uh Uh-uh. Sovereignty. The female has sovereignty over her body. But most of us haven't known that. And so the men have found out too. So what's the action plan for men? It's, it's similar to the action plan for those of us who identify as white when we start realizing that racism is in the system and has been invisible to us because we have the privilege of not seeing it if we don't want to see it. That men have had the privilege of not seeing all of this if they didn't want to see it often or minimizing it. Oh, that's not that bad. Oh, she just got a little bruise. He didn't break anything. The words of my colleague, Kendall Gibbons. She said, I am going to urge all of us to challenge the conventions of silence and dismissal. And I mean men and women alike. So, including trans folk, non-gender binary folk. I don't mean to leave those folks out when I say men and women alike. I want to explicitly name those folks and say, I see you non-gender binary people. And trans people. who know what I'm talking about even more intensely, since when a trans person walks on the street, everybody feels entitled to say a little something. Or fat people too, by the way. She says, in this sometimes difficult process, I offer you the shield of faith in case it might be useful. We say when we see someone picking on someone else, I can't be part of this because it's against my religion, which it is. If you see someone street harassing someone else, you can go, I'm sorry, I can't pass this by without saying anything because that's against my religion. People understand against my religion. You offer a Muslim person a ham sandwich and they're going to go, no, thank you. It's against my religion. Everybody understands that. You say, I can't allow you to touch me that way. It's against my religion. I can't allow you to speak to me that way. It's against my religion. So here is my invitation here at the end of this sermon. I want to say I invite those of you who have been sexually harassed sexually assaulted or sexually harmed to come forward. I wrestled with whether to open this to folks who identify as women only. But even though I thought, well, if I open it up to men too, then that's kind of an all lives matter thing and it takes the focus off of this is happening to women. And yet I thought, I want to create the world at least in this sanctuary, in which I would like to live and continue living. And so I want to say, if you're a man who has been sexually harassed or sexually assaulted, I invite you to come forward as well. And when you come forward, please, if you would, take a pebble and put it into the vase. That is all. And... 
I am terrible at logistics, and so I'm not going to say go up this aisle and down that aisle and back to your seat. I, I have no idea. So what I want to say is just be mindful of one another, and uh, as we sing this hymn, number 1002 in the turquoise hymnal, Comfort Me, feel free to participate if you care to. At the end of the service, I will add some stones for those who chose not to come forward, even though they have a story inside them as well. Your tears are present in this room. The way we help one another heal and the way we heal ourselves from trauma is to tell the story over and over and over and over, as many times as it takes. Love is listening. May it be so. Please say with me the words by which we extinguish our chalice. We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts until we are together again. Please sing with me if you care to. This is a production of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, go to our website at austinuu.org.